looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Tim. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 104 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. Great to have you back for a worldwide-sized episode. This one's got everything. Rajiv Satyal is here. You are likely one of the 50 million people who have seen his YouTube video, I Am Indian. Rajiv is a host of his own talk show, What Do You Bring to the Table? And he is the first comedian to perform comedy on all seven continents. And I believe, as of this airing, he remains the only comedian to have done so. I'm hot on this trail. I only have six more continents to conquer, but I'm coming for you, Rajiv. Anyway, we got lots of great stories coming up in just a few minutes. As your ears are enjoying this episode, I hope you also enjoyed last week's episode with Mike Binder. That's right. Mike Binder, comedian, writer, director of such movies as Indian Summer, Blank Man, Rain Over Me, The Upside of Anger, and of course, the Comedy Store documentary. Definitely treat yourself to that episode if you're starting here. If you're new to the podcast, we're so excited to be heading towards our bicentennial. That's our second hundred. I know that because I looked it up. What a crazy ride it's been. The first hundred episodes seem to go by in a blink of an eye. Our hundredth episode with Ronnie Cox and then Mike Binder and then Jackie the Joke Man made a guest appearance on a celebrity edition of Crossing the Streams bonus episode. And now Rajiv Satyal. It's like Christmas has come early. So exciting. Oh, and I haven't mentioned it in a while, but if you could, head over to jeffisfunny.com. Join my mailing list, buy me a coffee, listen to all the episodes, find a podcast app right there that you love, that you want to listen to my podcast on, you choose. Also, if you're in Michigan, if you're one of my Michigan peeps, I'm up for our Detroit's best podcast of 2022. I would love for you to vote for me. Just head on over to ourdetroit.com. Find the podcast category, click live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Comedy Show, cast your vote. I would so greatly appreciate that. Thanks in advance. And now it's time for the social media tip. All right, this is the part of the show where I like to share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you. A little 411 I picked up on the street. I have been in the social media game for quite some time, and I believe that if we all share information and raise each other's game, we all get better together. Today's tip is a tip, but also a little trickery, because today's tip is a reference to the conversation I'm about to have with Rajiv. I won't tell you where in the conversation it actually takes place, but the gist of the tip that we talk about during the interview is that when you create any post, whether it be an image or a video, but specifically in the conversation... But specifically in the interview, we talk video. It's important to take the extra time to make sure it's done really well. The better the quality, the better response. People love responding to really good looking, gorgeous content. 
I'll leave it right there for now. There's a lot of great information coming up in the conversation I have with Rajiv. And he should know he boasts over 50 million views on his I Am Indian video. So he knows a thing or two about creating amazing visual content. And that's the social media tip. I do want to thank everyone in advance for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. And that's how we keep the lights on. Today's interview sponsor is everyone's favorite game maker. Are you tired of playing checkers horizontally? Do you wish that you could play them vertically? Well, dream no more, because now horizontal checkers is a thing of the past. Vertical has become all the rage. You need to head out right now and get yourself a Connect Four. That's right, Connect Four. Checkers the way they were meant to be. Vertical. Connect four in a row and you win. I win. Where? Right here on Diagonally. Pretty sneaky, sis. Yeah, you want to go play Willow? Okay. Sounds like fun, huh? What are you waiting for? Get off your butt and grab yourself a Connect Four, the vertical checkers game you've been dreaming about. All right, well, I think it's time we all went out there and got a Connect Four. What do you think? I think so. You know what else I think? I think it's time I shared the conversation I had with Rajiv Satyal with you. Let's see what he brings to the table. Enjoy. I'm excited to introduce my next guest because if Kevin Nealon is to be believed, and why shouldn't he be, my next guest will soon be as much a household name as your toaster or blender. I kid. But seriously, my next guest is the only comedian to have performed on all seven continents. Can't wait to hear about that. He's super hilarious. I'm excited to welcome to the show Rajiv Satyal. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm doing so well because you pronounced my name right. So I'm feeling good, Jeff. Off to a good start. There's so many times I have to edit out where I'll be talking to a guest and I'll randomly be talking about someone that they worked with and I'll say the last name wrong because I've just horrible last names. But also sometimes you don't say last names out loud. It's always in your head. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. You must have had trouble in school, like when teachers, substitute teachers would say your name. I've had a weird experience with that with my last name. It's kind of an odd name, but I can imagine uh, we share that in common. Yeah, because at least you have Jeff to ground you, right? They at least get off to a good start with Jeff. How bad could it be, really? Even if it's Jeffrey, I think they probably had it down fairly well. And you even have the easy spelling of Jeff. You don't have the G-E-O-F-F, the Jeff Wa. I don't know how people deal with that or how they even got to that. That's true. I totally ignored my Jeff privilege there. <laughs> yeah, you have, you, have, you have first name. Yes, you have first name pronunciability. Uh, pr- is pronunciability is that the right word? Privilege. Yeah, it was tough. I was the only kid in class whose name was never called during roll call. So it would go alphabetically. David Sanders, here, Casey Sargent, here. Yeah, that's me. It was, I didn't even have a name. It was like a pause and a frown. So that's how it kind of went for me from elementary school on. But to your point, I think that was an insightful way you asked the question, Jeff, which is it was mostly substitute teachers because I had to start all over. So I built this rapport with the homeroom teacher, whatever uh, they were. And then we were trucking along and every now and then I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm different. Well, my last name, first of all, there's not a lot of like words that start with DW to begin with. And only three in the English language. Wow, you were good. (laughs) It was in the West Wing. (laughs) And the O in my last name is really kind of pronounced more of an ah. It's like Dwaskin, not Dwoskin or something like that if you were just to, to try and read it. But growing up, in my neighborhood, one of the people that advertised a thousand times a day was a veterinarian, Dr. Dworkis, Dr. Dworkin, Dr. Dworkin. And so everybody would just put an R in my name. So when the substitute teacher would be there, they go, Jeff Dworkin. And then it got to the point where the rest of the class would go, Dwaskin. <laughs> 
saying. That's good. It's like a call and response. You had a setup punch going for you and you had the class do your heavy lifting for you. It's like going to a concert where the audience just sings your songs. Yeah, but it's last names are it can be weird too. My brother says his different than mine. So like his friends called him Dwask because he said Dwaskin. I'd say Dwaskin. Mm. Like we just, we hit it differently. So it's like, no one even taught us. And I found that I even say it wrong on my podcast when I get excited and I'm like, Hey, it's Joe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like say yeah. it different. I don't even say it right. Somebody repeated Hey, now I know how to say your last name. And I'm like, that's not right. They're like, well, that's how you say it. I'm like I do. <laughs> oh, that's funny. He would get it played back to you. I wrote an article all about Kamala Harris and how do we pronounce her name? And it got published in the Washington Post. I was very privileged to have that happen. And, you know, there is a debate about, you know, who gets to decide? Is it you get to decide how to pronounce your own name? Is it society? Is it your parents? And people had their different take on it. It was it was a pretty interesting journey to figure out. But for the most part, people were like, yeah, it's pretty much up to you. Whatever you say, if you say my name is spelled J-E-F-F and I'm going to pronounce it Marvin, well, then we're going to pronounce it Marvin. I watched your uh, Kamala Harris video. Well, at least I watched like the first 20 minutes because it took- It's long. Well, plus you have so much content (laughs) on YouTube. For me to have committed to anything, like one thing and then listen to watch it all. It's like, I've talked to movie stars that don't have enough movies that fill the amount of time of your content on YouTube fills. And I mean, that's a compliment. I know you've had over 50 million views just on one of your videos. Like, so you've been total viral there, but that was, it was a great thing because Kamala, like everyone was spelling, everyone was saying her name wrong. It was right. But that was a good insight video. Thank you. I think that's actually- No, I appreciate the honesty too. You're like, I watched 20 minutes of it. It's like, maybe you watched 15, but even still you watched a lot of it. That's good. yeah, I had to watch it. You know, I had to like at some point, like if that was the only video you had done, I would have committed to the whole thing. I appreciate that you watched any of it. That's great. You had so many videos and I want to take in a little bit of each. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's, you had to take in a little bit of, uh, you know, Raj Against the Machine, a little bit of you know, what you bring to the table, you know, just your random videos, you know, your yeah. the Jester TEDx, you know, so I had to bring oh, well, so much that I wanted to just kind of get a feel for who you Deep were. tracks. And all you did. So that's why I was like, Ooh, that's a lot. You've done a lot. So, but what I found was interesting is like, you have such a strong corporate background. And I know you've, mm-hmm. you have a, one thread of, of corporate that you do now with uh, the standpoint agency. Mm-hmm. When you were at Procter and Gamble, like what was it that made you kind of just break away <laughs> and say, I'm just going to do full-time comedy. Cause I was the funny guy where I worked. I never had that, the cojones to kind of fully go ahead and do that. So I admire that you, you did that. What gave you kind of the confidence? confidence to like step away from a corporate job that I'm sure was paying a lot more than you eventually had to ramp up to make to kind of uh, follow that dream. Yeah. It was really turning 30 that did it for me. I had spent most of my life in Ohio. I love Ohio, but I was like, there's more to life than this. It's a big world. And to spend 30 years in one state is a long time. I was doing stand-up comedy on the side for four years. I had been working at PNG for six. So the first two, I didn't do it. Even though I had started, even before I went to Procter & Gamble, I started a little bit in college. I think it was getting to the point where I was featuring. So as a lot of your listeners probably know, there's an MC, then there's a feature, and then there's the headliner. The headliner is the main person at the end. When you're living in one area, you can pretty much get to featuring, but they're probably not going to headline you. You need to go off and go do something else. It's hard to stay in one town and headline because you would have to just build such an audience that can be done. But then it's almost like, okay, they want to see you leave to come home, right? So I was doing well featuring 
I felt like I'm a funny guy. Let me give this a shot. But I think it was a decision made more out of fear than love. And the fear of going, I'm 30. I don't want to be 40 years old looking at the TV going, I should have tried that. No regrets. No regrets. Plus you're in Ohio. So what, why not? <laughs> yeah. Because Sorry, you as, can Michigan people, come- as Michigan people like to make fun of. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Michigan and Ohio. I mean, there's a whole thing right there. I performed all over Michigan. I actually like Michigan a lot. And just to be fair, my dad's from Ohio, so I'm half Ohio. You're half Ohioan. I'm half Ohio. Yeah, that's right. Where's your mom from? She's from Michigan. So Okay, so you're Michigan-Ohio kind of right. couple there. So there you have it. That was the deal. That's what really set it for me. I just thought it's time to try something else. And I moved to LA to be the brand manager of Fiji Water. That lasted for 12 weeks and I jumped ship and I went into this full time. And a lot of my friends thought before I did, they're like, you're moving to LA to be a comedian. I'm like, no, I might do it on the side. And they're like, BS, man, come on, you're going to do it. And I really did not think that that's what I was going to do. I thought I'd give it a shot while I was out here in LA, but I didn't have the plan to, I'm not that diabolical to take a corporate job, do it briefly and leave. That's just not, I'm sure a lot of people would do it that way, but I wouldn't burn somebody like that. That'd be rough to do to somebody. You've got more integrity than that. I like to believe that. They must have wanted to keep you because I read that they named you the funniest employee in 2005. So, <laughs> uh, That's right. They, that was their, their bone they were throwing me. No, you know what, man? People always ask me, like, did you hate your job? You know, I go, no, I did not hate my job at all. I liked my job a lot. I really enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the work. But I think ultimately what it was for me, I thought any smart person in my shoes could do this job. You don't get much of a chance in those jobs to really put your own spin on it because there's a job to be done and they have to get tied on the shelf. And yeah, you can tell a couple of jokes in the meeting, but is the final product going to be that much different because of you specifically? And it can be. I felt like my talents are better used elsewhere. Fewer people can do this than do that. Gotcha. I read that in terms of comedy, your brother played a role and kind of pushing you into either getting on stage or entering a specific contest? Yeah, it was the funniest person in Cincinnati contest of Southwest corner of Ohio, my state. And he had just said, you write a lot of funny stuff. You're a funny guy. Just give it a shot. And Rakesh Satyal, my brother, he's a pretty prominent queer author. He lives in New York and Brooklyn with his husband, and he's really doing well with writing books and publishing and everything else. And so I always, even though he's younger, looked up to him in terms of his creativity because he was the kid in school who was, you know, lead in the plays and musicals, can sing, dance, the whole thing. So I think coming from him, it meant a lot more than just being drunk at a bar and your friend going, hey, you should get up on stage sometime. It was much more well thought out than that. No, it's cool. And it's like when it's your brother, it's like you kind of probably gives you a, a different level of confidence too, or to know you got family behind you. I can relate to that feeling. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. So you won, you eventually, maybe you, I don't think you won. I think I read you didn't win that one, but later you won Funniest Person in Cincinnati. Yeah. So I, I entered it and I made the semifinals. And then the next year I won. So I won it as an amateur and a semi, what they call a semi-pro. They don't really call you a professional because you're still entering contests. But the first one was the amateur and then the second was the semi-pro. You're reminding me of that. Actually, I kind of forgot. But yeah, I won it twice. So what does Cincinnati do for you? You get a parade. They're like, yeah, come on, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, key to the city, you know, your own street named after you. They change Main Street to your name permanently forever. Parking spot at Target. No, you, 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 get, you get some coverage in the paper. I mean, that was kind of cool. I got quite a bit of press while I was in Cincinnati, much to the chagrin, I think, of some other comics, because I think I was different in that, not just being Indian, but also the corporate side that you picked up on, Jeff. It's like, 
it is pretty different to have someone who works a full-time day job do stand-up comedy. That's still pretty rare. A lot of comedians don't come from a white-collar background. Yeah, I've I always found that like coming from a corporate background, comedy was kind of loose. <laughs> I brought a, that same mentality to my to my work ethic, being there early, making sure I always did the specific amount of time I was supposed to do, all those kind of things. I never felt that the managers appreciated it specifically because I think they were just so used to the other 99% of people yeah. that would or wouldn't show up, do whatever, ignore the light, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. That was always a, a little frustrating when those two yeah. worlds would marry, but... Oh, so this is an interesting thing. So uh, three comedians came out of Procter & Gamble. Back to Procter & Gamble for a second. Four. 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 Okay. Okay. You're the third to come out. I was out, the third four. and then there's a fourth. Yeah. What's in the, is it the Fiji water? Something in the Fiji water? Something's <laughs> in the Fiji water out there in LA. You know, in at P&G, I really do not have an explanation for it because it's very interesting because Greg Warren worked in sales, Josh Sneed and Drew Tarvin worked in IT, and I worked in marketing, purchasing and then marketing. It's not like we all came out of the same corner of the company or we were four guys that all hung out together and were funny or anything like that. Like, I know the guys. I think we all know each other. I mean, certainly by now we all know each other. There are some good comedians that have come out of Cincinnati. There, there's been a good tradition of that. But out of Procter & Gamble specifically, that is really fascinating. I, I, I don't know what drives that exactly. What I joked about was that P&G, it was kind of like... When Seinfeld is pitching the show within Seinfeld to NBC, you know, you you drive, you read, you sleep, you you know, whatever. It's like it's a it's a show about nothing. I mean, PNG makes like laundry detergent. You do laundry detergent. You Swiffer your place. You spray some Febreze. It's a company about nothing. And I would do that uh, that joke at PNG, which helped win me that contest. I think, but it was true. It was like I think at PNG, you're so fun. You're so focused on the day to day kind of perfunctory mundanities of the world that maybe it does get you into this mode of being connected to the every person. I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. I'm, I'm struggling for what, how four comedians would all come out of PNG within 10 years. And none before and none after, I don't think. They must have changed the, the water recipe or something. I, I've, I know I know, <laughs> I know of Josh Sneed. I've seen him around. I know of Greg Warren, too. I think actually, I think Greg Warren and I did a charity event. He wouldn't know who I was because it was just one of those things where you go in. It was like a you know big theater. You kind of go in and scatter yeah. after. But, but yeah, I think Greg Warren and I worked at a show where Tim Allen in Detroit was nice. there. And he had just kind of come back to do stand up for yeah. this uh, charity that we were doing. I opened for Tim Allen a lot at the Laugh Factory. Probably, I don't know if it's 20 times, it was at least 10 or 15. It was a lot. And he liked me and he was he was nice to me. He, was, he keeps to himself. He came into the set and left, but he was always very uh, courteous. And apparently he liked me. So that was good. No, that's good. I remember meeting him. I, I met him and he's from Detroit. So he, I bumped into yeah. him once at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. And Mark Ridley, I went up to him, I go, you got to introduce me. So it was really funny. He walks up to him, says hello. He extends his hand to my wife and I goes, hi, I'm Tim Allen, <laughs> which is exactly what you should do. That's but it was exactly just, what you should do. it was just funny though. Cause then, you know, in our heads we're like, yeah. yes, yes, you are. you are. And, uh, he was, he did keep to himself when we did the the charity event. I remember he was in a, in a different room. Yeah. Which is pretty common. I was the same thing with uh, a lot of comedians with whom I've worked, but he was always really, really nice and funny guy, man. He was, he's still doing it. Yeah, he was, he was a really good guy. I remember because I was introducing him almost every week in, in Hollywood, it was, I would look stuff up about him to change the intro. And I think that's what he liked. And I discovered it was something like in 1994, he had the number one book, number one show and number one movie all in the same week. Wow. It was yeah. cool. He did, uh, he took over an open mic here. It was a few years ago, it was pre-pandemic, but where nobody knew who it was, but you know, they said, everyone buy yeah. the tickets. You know, it was like five bucks and he did a whole 45 minute set. He was testing out that's material. Great. It was cool. He was cool. 
It was it was good to work with him. I remember walking away going, oh, crap, he's Buzz Lightyear. I totally didn't even, I forgot. I was talking to freaking Buzz Lightyear, and it didn't even yeah. occur to me while I was talking to him. I was like, I was all caught up in talking to him about Galaxy Quest or something like that, and I was just like. Yeah, well, he probably was more interested in Galaxy Quest because so many people think of him as Buzz Lightyear. But yeah, right. man, what, what a story career he's had. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. And, and what an origin story, this whole jail thing and. It's crazy. I remember saying to him when I was talking to him, I'm like, this is so great. I get to tell you, you're my, you're going to be my, my opening <laughs> come to stage thing from now on. He goes, Jeff, I worked with Suzanne Summers. I don't even think I worked with her. I bumped into her and I used her name for two years. <laughs> he said to me. That's funny. It was funny. So that's cool. All right. So PNG made you who you are today. And sure. no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> The toys that made us. The toys that made us. That's a great one too. How much do you spend on the standpoint agency? We should spend more time on it because it is actually a pretty darn good idea. My co-founder and I, Andy Gibson, he still works at Procter & Gamble. He's still at the Peach, And the company has been pretty good about letting us do it on the side, you know, and we have their blessing and all of that, which is awesome. We had some great comedians. I mean, basically, so people know what it is. It's an agency where we hire stand-up comedians to help businesses generate insights. And so a lot of the marketers out there will know exactly what an insight means in this context, but it's really just the nugget of the idea. And that nugget is what you use to build an entire advertising campaign, a global campaign. We had done that with Bonnie McFarlane, a very funny comedian from New York City. And there was a part where, you know, there are three portions to this program. I haven't described this in a while, but the first part is the comedians go on stage and they do 20 minutes about your brand. So it could be about hair coloring. It could be about deodorant. It could be about razors. It could be about motor oil. It doesn't matter. But comedians are really great at this. It's just, you know, like we're saying something out of nothing. And, you know, she did her 20 minutes on hair coloring for herbal essences. And then there was a part where we get to ask her questions like a Q&A, like, how did you pull the rabbit out of the hat? And then finally, there's a brainstorming session that happens. And I remember the insight happened during the Q&A because her set was very funny. But I was getting a little bit nervous, like, I don't know if we have anything yet that we can use. We always come up with something. This was really gold, gold, Jerry, because somebody asked her about coloring her hair. And she goes, I don't know. I just feel like it should be a joy, not a job. And when she said joy, not a job, you just saw all the pens to paper go nuts. And that was their core insight that women felt about coloring their hair. It was, it should be a joy, not a job. It feels like a job, but this is something that should actually make me quite happy that I get to do this and change my look. And it should not be such a chore. And Herbal Essences went on to use that as the basis of their $50 million global restage. It was very successful. So we've had Orny Adams, Josh Sneed, Sebastian Maniscalco, Roy Wood Jr. We've had some really good comedians do it. It's lain dormant for a while, but it's something that if anybody wants to hire us, we are able to do it. Orny's fun. I worked with him a couple of times. He's a hoop. He I, I, lo- I, I love the idea. Your tagline's great. Finding the ha in the ha. Uh, wait, <laughs> finding the ha in the ha. <laughs> it's it's hard to kind of say. It's it, it almost one of those that reads, you got to have the right voice. I feel like in the in the video I do for it, my voice is not suited for it, but it's pulling the aha from the haha. Yes, you said it much better than I said. <laughs> well, since I came up with it, I hope I hope that's the case. <laughs> I was trying to remember it. I was trying to write it down. I had it backwards. Yes, your version's way better. It's brilliant though, because I always, comedians see things from such a different point of view, like this weird 360 point of view. It's such an interesting profession to have to get on stage and connect with strangers. And I think it's that ability and that you have to succeed 
that kind of primes you for the, for that type of of insights and stuff like that. It's it was a brilliant observation for you to pull that all together and create that. Thank agency. you. Thank you. And then you get to work with all your comedian friends too. So that's like a, a whole side benefit to it, right? There is something to be said for that. It is kind of an interesting thing because people like Sebastian and Orny are looking to you. You know, I'm hosting up there and I know the language of the corporate people, right? I mean, I spent a lot of time there. So it's a different world. Like you were just saying, Jeff, about how we had this corporate mindset coming into an open mic or a comedy club or whatever. They do speak differently. They do need a translator. I mean, but both ways. So the corporate folks would talk and the comedians would not totally get what they're saying and vice versa. So I'd have to be like, this is what they meant by this. This is what they meant by that. So when he dropped the MF bomb, this is no, it wasn't even that. It was just more of like putting it in a language that they would understand because they can't really, as corporate people, write something that comedians can digest and go, what do you mean by an insight? Okay, well, I have to explain that that is kind of like in a punchline, you've got a premise, right? Comedians like, okay, yep, got it, got it. You're basically trying to find the premise for the ad. And you know, you need someone who's a marketer and a comedian to do that. I don't think too many people speak both of those languages. No, I don't, I don't think so either. But you did a great job with that exact topic with your TEDx speech, gesture is you. king. Making the connections. Nice. Yeah. Yes, that's right. But it is interesting, like just the whole idea, the insight, benefit, reason to believe, joke, setup, punch, tag. It's interesting, just the parallels, but it's the concepts the same, right? You're, it's That's why your insight's so, be- uh, so uh, brilliant. Like you're watching a commercial, you got to get someone to convert right there while they're watching it. You're on stage, you got to get them to laugh, right? So you have to get them to convert through the, the version of the story you're telling. So the parallel is brilliant. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. That was a good time. I, I watched the whole TEDx. Kamala, I didn't watch the whole thing, I'll admit, but I did watch your whole TEDx. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's kind of a long TEDx, especially by today's standards. A lot of them are more like six to eight minutes now. That was an 18 minute. And I that was the limit. You were not allowed to go more than 18. And I did some stand up in the beginning, which I probably would not do now. I think there were a couple of things I did. I was trying to do two things in that speech. I was trying to make two points. And with a TED talk or a TEDx talk, it's better just to pick one. And I regret not making it a little bit more inspirational. Like, here's how you could use this. I think it was a little bit more personal, which is probably why that didn't travel as well. I think if you can do it in the second person of like, here's what you can take out of this. It's more inspirational. So if I had to do it again, which someday I might, uh, that's how, that's what I would change. I found that a lot of the TEDx Detroit's, they bring in comedians and, and mm. sometimes it's a mash of, of stand up and or message. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is. It was, I was surprised to see it so long because you're right. Most of them are like eight to 10 minutes or they're much, they're shorter, but it was good. It was really good. And I thought it was yeah. great that you kind of eased into, you know, it starts with the stand up. So it's, it's a fun watch. It's a great watch. I loved it. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Idea word spreading. It is. So we do share one TV credit laughs on Fox TV. There's our one. <laughs> I saw that. Yes, that's right. Yes. Is that, that Steve Hofstetter, right? Yes. I filmed mine. And when I tell you destroyed, it was the best ever three minutes ever. Right. I mean, it was just, I think I just went on right after a bunch of good people. I just nailed it. You know how that goes, right? Best. Like a month later, I'm at the comedy castle and the guy turns to me who usually messes with me, you know, comedians, right? We mess with each other before a show or something. says, Jeff, they lost that. They lost the tape. And I'm like, you're just, you're just effing with me. Right. Funny one. He's like, no, (laughs) like this is as I'm walking on stage, which is the timing of which he definitely yeah, did on purpose. Tell me now. I was just oh. like, oh man, I got to re- record it, but you know how it is. Like it went well, it was the second time, but you know what I mean? Like when you can, you compare things. No, in your head, that's it's tough. Like, that's, yeah. that's my biggest fear. When we filmed the talk show, what do you bring to the table? Which I film here in the studio in Burbank. Whenever we record, I always try to tell them to play it back so I could see 
it before we go because video and audio, right? And the thing is, if you don't have video, you don't have a show. But if you don't have audio, you don't have an interview. You have nothing. You have nothing. Like at least you can still put this thing out as a, as a podcast, right? But if you have video and no audio, you've got bubkas. You've got a bunch of motion pictures. You have nothing that you can You got use. a silent movie. <laughs> you got a silent movie. What are you going to just dub it in? How are you going to even remember what they said? So you need a bad lip reading uh, guys or something like that to, to do that. But that's always my biggest fear is, is lo- losing anything I wrote, losing anything that was taped. That's my nightmare. I'm sorry that happened to you. That blows. That's okay because it led us to talk about what you bring to the table, which <laughs> yeah, makes it all worth it for you. It makes it all worth it. So <laughs> yeah. let me ask you a question. Did you create the 12 episodes, then do the Kickstarter or did the Kickstarter help? Great question. I actually have to think about that now. I, I did the 12 episodes first and then I ran the Kickstarter and now we're, we just filmed season two. That was another 12 episodes. Actually, we've done 13. So we have a jump start on season three. We're doing 12 episodes per per season. It's a series, video and audio, where I interview. It, the focus is on immigration. It's not political. It's just more to showcase and highlight people who are either first, second, or third generation. The reason I stop at third is third generation means your grandparents came here. And that means you still had some influence. Because if your great-grandparents came here, I don't know how you're full-on American at that point. I think fourth generation, you're you're an American, like through and through, which of course you are once you come here and get your citizenship. But it's different, right? Where you had no outside influence at that point. If you have like our son, he's only a few months old. He's interacting with all four grandparents. He has that, you know, from the motherland touch. But if we were his grandparents or his kids, what, what do we say? We grew up listening to Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and Michael Jackson and Prince. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't listen to Indian influence stuff. We don't have the pop culture knowledge that my parents have and the, the essence that they have. So that's why the show, I think, whether you're Polish or Russian or Irish or Indian or Korean, I want to talk to you if you have that kind of an experience. We're starting with South Asians just because that's what I am. And I have access to a number of fairly uh, prominent ones. But then we're going to move into the East Asian and Jewish and European. African, everybody. We want to. We want to document everybody's immigration experiences. When you get to white Jews, just let me know. The um... white Jews. That's key. That's clutch. <laughs> a lot of my friends are white Jews, right. and that's not saying I'm not about to say something anti-Semitic, which is what most people say when they say that sentence. No, I am. I I am. I would say it was a pitch. I'll have my people call your people. <laughs> the premise of the show is that you ask your guests to bring a game that you play during the interview. What do you bring to the table? So it was that was great. I didn't guess that from the name, but when you watch it, that was that was an interesting, fun Thank twist. You. I watched a couple episodes, and it seemed from the um, thumbnails that maybe there was a propensity for a lot of people to choose Connect Four. There was. There was a lot of Connect Four now in the studio for season two and going forward to infinity and beyond. We will be using ping pong. I've got a ping pong table in here, and that's the set now, and, and that's also a literal table. The great thing about ping pong, two things. One is everybody can play. So there's, even if you're in a wheelchair, which one of our upcoming guests is, you can still hit a ball because we're not playing competitively. You can still hit back and forth. That's one great thing. So you don't have to be completely able-bodied to do it, yet it's a little bit physical. But the other great thing from an editing standpoint is it's so much easier to edit because we would play Connect Four, we would skip and people are like, oh, what happened to the moves? And they would get lost in the game. Ping pong has no continuity to it or has constant continuity, however you want to say. So that's part of why we we do ping pong. Right. You cut away and you're like, you sunk my battleship. <laughs> what? Right. You just started. Yeah. After they left. Just like- right. It's like watching uh, when, we, when At Midnight used to be on and they would edit. Yeah. So you go from no points to 300 points or something. Yes. But, uh, points, points, points. You're a very good interviewer. The two I watched a bunch you. of was uh, Hassan 
Hassan Minhaj, who also happens to be your old roommate, who I did watch him do the the press conference, uh, the what's it called? White House uh, Correspondents Dinner. The White House Correspondents Dinner. Killed it. That was that was great. That was great. That's cool. That he was your roommate though, so that's fun. Yeah, couple of years. And then I watched Priya. The one with Priya, the adult star. Yes, and, the adult um, star. I watched it because I was impressed, like how you didn't make it uncomfortable. It was a great conversation. It would, you didn't make her feel weird about. You know, what I mean, it was like there was, you know, what I mean. Yeah, it's such an interesting um, profession, and so it's uh, funny you say that because it's my mom's favorite interview that I've done. That always surprises people, surprises me. But she goes, "What you said?" She goes, "You asked her everything that people want to know, but you, somehow you kind of walk this tightrope of keeping it clean. You have a very clean brand." And it, I was just discussing this with a potential sponsor today, actually, about okay, just FYI, we had somebody in season one. We kept it clean. We bleeped out the swear words, whatever, and we didn't get horribly dirty or anything like that. We kept it PG thirteen, but. I think that was the challenge. I mean, there's some stuff on the cutting room floor where we talked about some stuff that was super racy and, you know, we're like, okay, we can't put this in the show. I would just appreciate how open she was. Pun intended. I'm kidding. Uh, how uh, <laughs> She was great though. And I had a, I had a blast. I mean, you're a comedian with a, with a uh, porn star. I mean, what could be better than, uh, than that kind of a uh, guest? You seem to be having a really good time, but she also did too. I mean, she was, she seemed to, she was a great guest. Everything we talk about, everyone who's listening, you can go to funnyindian.com and then there's a video section. You can hop over to the YouTube. All the videos that we're talking about are there in all their glory. Yes. Thank you. I am Indian. 50 million views. Yeah. What was the inspiration behind that? I mean, just to, cause you made a series of them. Yeah, I'm American. I'm Okay. I am Ohioan. Yes, <laughs> I, I made I made a few of them. They were not connected. I'm American. It's probably a little bit more connected because I felt like it was something the country needed at the time before I accepted the fact that we're headed for collapse no matter what we do. So when I was feeling a little bit more inspired, I was going, all right, I think this is something we can we can put together. It came from from the heart, from the soul. My friend, actually, Andy, the guy with whom my partner on Sandpoint Agency, he said, I said, what did you think of I Am American? And this is right before I released it. I, I sent him a, a, a rough cut of it or final cut before I put it out. And he goes, it's really good, but it's not going to do nearly as well as I Am Indian. And I go, why is that? And he goes, chest thumping is part of being American. Like every beer commercial, every truck commercial is, you know, just very patriotic and there's flags and there's ribbons and there's July 4th and there's so many things about which we're patriotic. And that's part and parcel of being an American is just being super outspoken about it. It's like being a New Yorker, just talking about how great it is all the time or being from Texas. They do the same thing where he goes, what was amazing about your video, Andy, Andy's a, a white dude from Ohio, but he goes, what was amazing about I Am Indian is that that does not exist in your culture. Like you don't have people standing on a stage into a mic asserting that they're Indian because that's why people rallied around that so much. And he goes, I felt, I felt like your community really needed that. Like it was a real, Americans don't need that. We kind of already know, even if we're delusional about it. And I credit to my cinematographer and my director who helped me really push to get the writing just perfect. I mean, it is, the writing is perfect. I mean, I wrote it, but I did, I, that was not the final, that was not the first cut. It was my director just pushing me and pushing me and going, you got more, you can go deeper. You can say, you can say this better and you got more in you. And it, it's just, it was like a trainer of like, you do 20 reps and you can't do a 21st, but a great trainer will get that 21st rep out of you. And you, he, he did, he got that last rep out of me when I felt like my muscles were failing. And I think that's what made the scripts just so tight. And I think to have a video travel like that, it just has to be perfectly written, perfectly delivered, perfectly edited. And, you know, so I'm only one part of that. I got to perform it and I got to write it too. But like I said, I had help with just so much encouragement. 
but I was glad the highest compliment I could get tying it in with the immigration stuff is uh, when people would write to me and say, you know, I came to this country, I have a couple of kids and they never wanted to talk about being Indian. They saw your video and then they were proud to be Indian. And I was like, dude, that's brings tears to my eyes. Like that's, that's identity. That's your whole, like how you, your whole life is just your self-perception. You can affect that for a person, even one person. That's great. So to get multiple messages like that, as an artist, you just feel like, I think people have very, very, I mean, much more successful careers than I've had, but they get to the end of it and they go, what did I really leave the world with? What did I really say or do that really elevated people? And I don't have nearly the level of success of, of some of my peers, but I'll always have that. I'll always have this feeling of like, I helped with my community self-perception. And I think that's, that's, that's the thing. I thought it was amazing. It was, it was really touching. And I enjoyed the American one too. I, I haven't watched the Ohio one yet. As a, as a, Michig- as a Michigander, what are you going to yeah, do? I don't know if I'm allowed to. I have to say though, and I think you kind of alluded to this, is do your production value on all the videos you do, incredible like insanely incredible. Like it makes it really easy to watch everything you do. It just, it matters. You know, I don't think people, you know, like in the world that we live in right now, where everyone just takes five seconds to do a a TikTok or, you know, a reel Mm -hmm. or something like that. It's nice to just watch something that not only is well-written and well-performed, but visually is, is striking and kind of pulls you into the whole feeling as well. I appreciate that a lot because that's where a lot of the expense comes in. It's no stone unturned. And the people with whom I've worked and the guy who shot the I Am Indian video, I'm still working with him. Brandon Salgado is incredible. And he just, he will find that last rep. He will bring the right camera and the right sound and get it exactly right. And it's like watching the Defiant Ones with Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine and those guys and talking about how Bruce Springsteen took like two weeks to find the right drum beat. It is finding a team that maybe is not committed to absolute perfection, but certainly excellence. I appreciate that because, yeah, that's that's what's taken a lot of my resources, my time, my money and my energy has gone into making stuff look good. And I really think that's where Hassan Minhaj has really excelled. If you look at his stuff, anything that he puts out, we used to talk about this in the apartment and he would just say, I don't know why people can't just make it look dope. He would keep saying that. Just make it look dope. You can. And even on TikTok and Instagram. Some of these, I was talking to uh, an actress who may move here and I was just saying this to her yesterday. I said, you know, we, we do ourselves a disservice when we say we're going to put up little videos on TikTok. Well, if you're going to put up little videos on TikTok, you probably won't put a lot of effort into it, but take the word little out of your vocabulary. The people who put up the best content, even if it looks like they just, like a good stand-up comic that looks effortless, they probably put eight hours into that video, man. Like it was no joke getting it up there. And so remove the word little from your vocabulary because that's really, that's your craft. Oh, there's definitely some people that do it and they get paid handsomely. I worked for a big corporation and ran social media on TikTok. And then, I mean, some of these people make tens of thousands of dollars for those 15 second (laughs) videos. Yeah, Yeah. it's crazy. That is crazy. What also is crazy is Hillary Clinton spending $100,000 to send you to India. (laughs) Great segue. Very morning show of you. That was beautiful. Make chai, not war. I- I understand everything behind it. I thought the humorous part about it was Rand Paul kind of railing against it and and you and and her because they could have sent you with $100,000 to hand out to people that needed the money and they still would have complained Mm. about it because it was Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton doing it when she was with part of the State Department. Yeah. How was that to be part of that hoopla? Not Not the actual... We can talk about the actual tour, which I thought was, I'm sure was amazing as well. But just the whole political backlash being kind of caught up in, 
and that, especially nowadays where it's all oh yeah, so crazy. It's everything's politicized now, and I think it food is where you eat, what you do, where you drive, where you vacation. Everything is politicized, and that's a tough place to be. But I, it was cool ending up in the congressional record. I mean, just to have something you created being like in the congressional record. I, I should go try to see it if it's physically somewhere. I've never really even thought about trying to do that. But I mean, Rand Paul's a moron. I mean, I think you and I can both agree. Screw Kentucky. But actually, I wouldn't say that. I've had some really good experiences in Kentucky. I can't really say that. I think he was looking to score political points, of course. And but I don't know, just being used as a prop. I mean, I think it was kind of cool, right? Because it's just kind of a you're a comedian. You should want that. Like it's just funny. It's just more material for you. Like I got to talk about that on stage. And my uh, press person in Cincinnati was like, "My gosh, you should totally try to like clap back at him." And I don't know. I guess so. I, I think that the joke was kind of done where I did the tour. He tried to, you know, sort of burn it. And then I do a comedy act about it. I don't know that there was much more place to take it because he's not a funny guy. It's not like no. you can really you could take that joke too far where it just becomes sad. And I'm like, I think just like three hits on this and, and we're good. I don't think he understands that. That's soft diplomacy. That's ping pong diplomacy, like getting to change the hearts and minds of people, sending real people, jazz musicians, stand up comics around the world to be like, this is what America gives the world. And it's not just war and bombs. It's actual there's good culture that we've created, too. And don't forget that. So I think when you can share a laugh, I mean, that's why comedians do it, right? You share a laugh, you can share some love and some light. That's kind of the great thing is when people are laughing, they can't hate you. Is it intentional or weird that when you say ping pong diplomacy, I immediately think of Forrest Gump and I know exactly what you're talking about? <laughs> it's so good. It's, it's just such a great... Uh, I was talking to a, uh, a guy at a conference that I performed at a couple of days ago and we were talking about experiences that we had because I talked about traveling to all the continents and then he was telling me that he was actually... He had a couple of moments. One of them was he, I think, was talking to the session guitarist that was in the session with John Lennon and Yoko Ono the day, December 8th, 1980, that he was shot. And wow. he was talking to him that day or something like that. And there was another moment like that where he was a part of history. He was somewhere where something like that, like just peripherally, but you were on the edge. And then a lot of Forrest Gump was that too, right? He was just in the room. And I thought that was pretty wild. But yeah, ping pong. Great sport. Great movie. Best picture, 94. Yes. Amazing. And you mentioned continent. So let's talk about that. You were the, now, are you the only comedian ever or the first? Are, that's I a mean, great I, question. Only, but I say first because that will eventually change someday. I'm well, sure. that's what so. I was saying. I didn't, it's, you know, sometimes you read something and it could have changed since. I just, so you're still the first and only comedian to perform on all seven continents. All right. So, so tell me the thought process behind this. Like, when did you realize it was like, you're, Obviously, you started in Cincinnati, so you're like, oh, well, I got That's North one. America down, right? I got 14.28% of the continents already covered. Well done. And I'm like, you know, maybe like you're living with Hassan. What do you think about this, man? Do you think I should knock off the do, other do, continents? Do the other six while I'm at it? I mean, how hard can it be? I mean, I already got one down. I mean, what's, what's yeah, six more? I mean, six. there's only seven. There's only seven. It's a finite number. It's a very low, finite number. I was at the Ice House in Pasadena the comedy club. And I was talking to a guy who on his own just said, you know, he was sort of recapping his career and he was proud of what he had done. And, you know, it, it didn't come off as bragging. He was just, he was just talking about the things that he had done. It was sort of just sharing road stories or war stories from the road. And he said something like I performed on all six continents that had people. And that gave me the idea. I was like, huh, that's an interesting one-up type of possibility, not him specifically, but just 
I wouldn't have to have the qualifier. I wouldn't have to say the six continents that have people because Delta Airlines even has that. They travel to six continents with people. And I was like, what a way to actually I have a, a Metallica. I know this is audio, but I have a Metallica guitar pick because uh, I just told the story at another conference and a guy doing tech is like, I got something for you tomorrow. And he didn't tell me what it was. And he handed me this Metallica guitar pick. The significance of that is they're the first band and only band maybe to perform on all seven continents. Okay. So you're there and you're like, wait a minute, this guy doesn't know there's people on Antarctica. <laughs> so you start or he slowly can't get back. There. So you slowly it's hard. start backing away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, if I can get the next flight out of here. And that was kind of the thing. That's, that's why I didn't build it up. It was like, I talked to my PR people and I was like, should I like do a campaign before I go and all this? And they're like, yeah, you totally should. It's so cool. People can track you. I go, yeah, but I wonder how many comedians have done six continents. Could somebody just do it just to do it and beat me to it? Because after all of this work of flying around the world to lose it by like a week, because somebody just goes and does it. But then you're like, okay, hold on. First of all, how many people care? Like, is that really a thing that anybody's going to care about? But then you go, I don't know. How many comedians have done five continents? A lot. I think there are a lot of comedians who have done uh, even when I performed in Australia, you mentioned Orny Adams. His pictures is there on the wall in the in the uh, in the comedy club, the, the comedy store there. You know, and a lot of people have done South Africa. That's not that hard to do. And then, of course, they you know they've probably done Asia, Europe, and North America. Getting to five is not really that hard. They're probably ever they're probably a hundred comedians who have done that. I would not yeah, be totally five's, surprised. Five is easy. I'm just yeah. four away. You're four away from getting to five. <laughs> yeah, that's the, you're there. You're on the on the door. You're knocking on heaven's I'm door. On the I'm, like, I'm on your heels. <laughs> you're, you're, you're creeping on up. You're creeping on up. But then to get to six, because even Russell Peters, for whom I've opened a lot and actually opened him at uh, open for him at the uh, in Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan Theater. Here's oh, nice. And their little uh, Michigan connection there. You know, he has not done South America. And I asked him why he hadn't. This is years before I even had this idea. He goes, well, English is not widely spoken in South America. It's hard to find English content, especially comedy. And I did find someone, you know, that's the great thing about stand-up comics is a very small network. And so I was like, let me just paint the Latino comics I know. And most of them are Mexican, but I know I knew uh, Francisco Ramos is Venezuelan and some other folks. I was like, can you put me in touch with anybody in Brazil or, or Argentina? And they did. They put me in touch with Eliana, who runs a show in Buenos Aires. And I was able to knock that one out on the way down to Antarctica. And after I did the Buenos Aires show, since I was going to Antarctica the next day, I'm like, okay, now I can tell people what I'm doing. I don't think Gabriel Iglesias is going to catch a flight down. See, the other thing is the uh, the people who would who have done six, I don't know what that list is. That'd be a very interesting list to assemble. A, are they going to give a crap? And B, the people of the resources to pull it off on short notice probably couldn't do it. He's probably booked. He was probably booked for a New Year's gig. I did this in December 2019. He's a busy guy. He's on TVs and movies. He's not going to just fly down there to do it on a whim, probably. I don't know. I've never found, I've never tried to really find the answer to that question, like how many comedians have done six, but nobody's done seven. Well, I'm curious if the ones that have done six is Antarctica the only one they haven't done. One would assume that because I, I like to say I'm the only comedian ever to perform in Antarctica, but that's a hard claim to make. I think it was on my website, but I mentioned to my web guy, I was like, we probably have to take that down because I'm probably the only comedian, first comedian. There were, uh, there was actually another comedian on the ship when I went down. It's funnily enough, an Indian comedian. And I, I beat her to doing my jokes first on the continent. That was kind of a thing in and of itself. She was funny though. She was, she was great. I felt though that the idea of saying you're the only person to stand up on Antarctica is hard to say because there's a bar there. There's scientists. I'm sure somebody got drunk and told jokes on a stage one night. Like that's stand-up comedy. So 
I don't think you can you can say you're the first person ever to do stand up comedy on Antarctica. I mean, maybe, but that's a hard thing to prove. Important question: Do you have seven continent swag? I feel like I do. No, I hope I would hope you do. I would hope you do. I would be everything except Antarctica. I don't have. At first, I thought you meant swagger. Like, do I feel like a global comedian? Oh no! Well, but actually, well swag, obviously, I have swagger. You know, but it's, swag. It's, it's a great. I have. Story. I have something from every continent except, but Antarctica. Interestingly enough, somebody asked me this just uh, the other day. I followed the rules. I did not actually take anything from the continent. They're, they they are very adamant about it. They're like, don't take a rock. Don't take anything from here. It is something we're trying to preserve. And I thought, okay, I'm an environmentalist. I'll, I'll roll with that. I mean, I'll, I'll put that over my personal ego of wanting to put something in my little curio cabinet from Antarctica. That's fine. I'll, maybe if, the, if there's a company that sells it or I could buy it or something in there. So it's, I don't think it's posing. It ain't tricking if you got it. I respected the other uh, rules. So I did not grab anything from there. Cool. Can I add your shows you have like a, around the world with? Oh, I should. I should have like a, it should be like a front and back t-shirt side. And like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good idea on the arm. There we go. All right. I want 10%. <laughs> maybe it could well it could be a hoodie we could we could design it right now jeff it's like you could have maybe i don't know well your arms and legs that's four and then your back and front that's six and then a hood kind of thing like let's create like a full body and then to put all the continents on it i like it it's not it doesn't sound as good on paper as i'm sure no, it would it's be in terrible life, it's an but... awful idea actually <laughs> i don't know it's kind of just feeling like a weird octopus yeah one final thing I do want to talk about, which I thought was so cool, which was when you were opening for Kevin Nealon and you proposed to your girlfriend on stage. So my question is, did she have any idea that was coming? I've asked her that afterwards and she goes, I kind of started to clue in, but I didn't really know for sure until you did it. She goes, it started to become a little more obvious because my mom had her walker to the bathroom just to get her closer to the stage. So I told my mom because she, my we had they had VIP. They were in the way way back, and I said for this joke to land, there she's going to need to be a lot closer to the stage. And so I told my mom at this point, whatever this signal was, ask Hersha to walk you to the bathroom because it's quite a walk. It's about a hundred feet or seventy five feet. It's a good one minute at least which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're telling a joke, a minute is a very long time. As you mentioned, when you did three minutes for laughs, right? It's it's a long time. So I got her all the way up to the side of the stage and that's when I I, I dropped it on her. Yeah, one minute on stage when you're trying to do a minute and, and aware of it long. can be an eternity. Long. <laughs> yeah. That's what they say. But when you get up to the comedy store and they give you three minutes at the open mic, it, your, your first take is what can you learn in three minutes? A lot. You can tell if somebody's funny in, in 30 seconds. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, okay, so it was... It was really, it was so cool that she even got up. <laughs> I don't know that I could have got my wife on stage. And I'm assuming that box was from Tiffany's. It looked like a blue yeah, Tiffany's box. I went, went top shelf with that one, man. So the impressive thing, though, is that she said yes without even opening the box. She went sight unseen. That's how, that's how you know she loved you very oh, much. Oh, that's a good point. I don't think anybody's made that point before. That's a really good one, Jeff. I'll have to say that to her tonight. But like, you know what? That could have mm. been a Cracker Jack ring or something. That's right. And then I, in my head, I was like, oh, it would have been so amazing if when you were walking by Kevin Nealon, you were like, follow that, bitch. Well, it's funny you say that because uh, over lunch, I had called, I had told him I was going to do it. Then he called and he goes, are you sure? And he goes, hey, man, uh, he goes, are you sure she's going to say yes? I go, well, even if she says no, that'd be, that'd be great comedy, right? He goes, as a comedian, that's funny. He goes, but I'm your friend. He's like, honestly, I'm, I'm worried for you. Like, are you, what if 
Like, are you guaranteed the the I love you return, as I say in Seinfeld? I go, yeah, I mean, I'm uh, yes, she's going to say yes. You know, she had told me, slipped something really subtle to me before we went to Cincinnati for that trip in 2014. She said something very subtle and cryptic, like, my parents would love if you proposed on this trip. So I was like, I decoded that as the, you know, translator. She kept it that vague, that vague, and you were able to decode it. (laughs) Comedy than I am, the Captain Power decoder ring. Yeah, I used that, my my powers of intuition and induction to mean that maybe I should propose to her. I knew it was coming in, in a good way. And then I said, do you want me to come on after you because after you do your set, or should I do it as part of mine? Because how are you going to follow that? It's Neil and right? He goes, Rajiv, I'll, I'll follow it. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. It was like, who are you talking to? It's Kevin Nealon. You'll figure it out. Well, the funny thing is, well, one, it was brilliant to get engaged on stage because one, the whole thing was then recorded. So that was yes. great. But then two, his follow-up, his tag Beautiful. to your joke which was, ah, it brings up a different girl every night. <laughs> Perfect. Brilliant. And like, the, and, and beautiful that you gave him the time to think about it too, because he knew it was coming. So he, that was, he was such a good sport about it. And cause I could, I could see a, you know, a headliner maybe being like, no, like that's going to be a little gimmicky and I'm going to, you know, it's going to change the mood of the audience or whatever. I mean, I hope nobody would say no, but I did have to, I wanted to seek his permission. I didn't want to blindside him like that. And it's his show ultimately, like it, people are coming to see him. I mean, it's my home turf and there were a lot of people in the audience for me, but I mean, it's still, he's a headliner. You, you got to give him the respect. You got to accord him that respect that it's his show. No, he was great, man. He, we've remained friends and it was great to be able to say that I proposed opening for Kevin Nealon and then Russell Peters opened for me at our wedding. That, that was a cool arc to be able to say. That's really cool. You're a good name dropper too. I appreciate I'm that. A very good so name did Russell Peters, did Russell Peters, uh, he did a set at your wedding? He did. He was hilarious. He did a good, I'd say 10 to 12 minutes. Very funny, of course. And then I went up uh, like after, I think it was right after him maybe. And that, and I told, I made that joke. Of course, I was like that. My whole ploy was just so that you would have to open for me someday. But uh, yeah, it was cool that that he came and as a friend, and he stayed. He came early, stayed late, took hundreds of pictures with people. Was a really good sport about it. He didn't just drop in for fifteen minutes. Like he hung out. It was fun. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. You have a blessed life. This is a great story. Everything. Love the whole journey. And I know it's just the beginning too. So, but lots of great stuff. I'm confident if there's ever an eighth continent, you will conquer it. Somebody said I should go to Mars or the moon. They're like, you should be the first comedian to perform in space. I'm like, oh yeah, that's the final frontier. That would be great. <laughs> it's possible. You never know. People are going now. It's it's a thing. So no, man, I, I I do think about that. And just like sitting in the studio and hanging stuff up on the wall. And just, I think a lot of performers have to do that because there is that insecurity that drives you. And every now and then you hang something up on the wall and you look at that, whether it's a gold album or it's a, you know, a headshot or it's something signed or whatever it is. And you go, oh yeah, I did that. And that, that just, it's a reminder to you. It's, it's, I mean, part of it is probably ego, but it's just to be able to look back and go, you should be appreciative of what you've done, man. Like you, you left Procter and Gamble. That was 15 years ago. You know, there's no guarantee that it's going to work out. There's no guarantee at all. Uh, but to land on your feet and marry a beautiful woman, have a son and live in Burbank and the sun is shining and come on, you, you, you got, you got to be happy with that. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me. I can't thank you enough. I really had a blast, Jeff. I loved your questions. I love the fact that you asked questions, uh, that, clearly events that you had done your research. And I always appreciate that. It was, it was a pleasure hanging out with you as well. So you got to let me know when you get to LA and I'll do the same when I get to uh, the Detroit city, eight mile D12. I was on HBO. <laughs> I was rewatching that the other day. I definitely look forward to that. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. How amazing was Rajiv Satyal? 
Soon as you're done hearing this, head on over to funnyindian.com. Check out all of his great content. Such a fun conversation. So cool hearing about his travels to the seven continents. Can you imagine that? It's so amazing. So amazing. And also, I just read on the Twitters, season two of What Do You Bring to the Table is getting ready to gear up. So you have plenty of time to watch season one and then watch season two as that comes out. Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for a trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free, always free, never costs a penny app from the Android or Apple app stores. Get notified every time a game starts, play along, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Tawaskin Show. Fame and fortune awaits you. This week's hashtag comes from the legendary game of Friday Fondue. The hashtag is hashtag time travel songs. While Rajiv didn't time travel, he did travel, so I thought I'd mix it up, throw in a little time travel as well. I'm sure that he'll conquer that in due time. Anyway, this awesome hashtag, hashtag time travel songs, is the ultimate mashup of songs and time travel. I know, right? I'm going to read some tweets. All those tweets will be retweeted at Jeff Dwoskin Show on Twitter. Go find them, like them, retweet them, show them some love. All right, here are some hashtag time travel song tweets. Blinded by the speed of light. Caught up like a... I will just call to say I love you. Highway to H.G. Wells. All right, these are some examples of hashtag time travel songs. Didn't expect the killer singing, though, did you? Well, maybe after we'll time travel back and I'll tell myself, don't sing. Stuck in the Middle Ages with you. 1999 BC, we're gonna party like it's 1999 BC. Booth operator. That's a reference to Bill and Ted's, of course. Love that movie. The waiting is the tardest part. The 12 monkeys of Christmas on the first day of Christmas. All right. Papa was a rolling Flintstone. These are amazing hashtag time travel songs. Where we're going, we don't need old town roads. Someone save my past life tonight. Brady McFly for a white guy. Looper trooper. All right. I think I was channeling Abba there pretty good for a second. There will be an answer. Let it be C. Let it be C. I walk the timeline. Phonograph. Anything by Doctor Who. And our final hashtag time travel song. Radio killed the vaudeville star. All right. That's it. Hashtag time travel songs. I apologize for my singing. Tweet your own hashtag time travel song. Tag us at Jeff Dewaskin Show. I'll find it. I'll show you some love. Have some Twitter fun with us. All right. Well, the interview's over. The hashtag game's over. That can only mean one thing. The episode has come to an end. Well, you know what they say about good things. They come to an... I, I don't remember the exact phrase. Anyway, I want to thank my guest today, Rajiv Satyal, for sharing so many amazing stories. And I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.